Morning, church family. Uh, my name is Cornelius. I'm from the Irene, Irene Life Group um, with TEPSA. Uh, we're reading from Isaiah 3 today, from verse 1. Please read with me. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turned to other gods and loved cakes of raisin, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ether or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of God. Thanks, thanks, Cornelius. Of course, those words were familiar to you because you did your homework. Show of hands. Hey, one or two. The dogs were busy this week, eating a lot of homework. I can see that. We're in Isaiah. We, uh, as usual, whenever we come to the Lord's word, we need the help of his spirit. So why don't you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Father, apart from your mercy, we are hopeless and lost. Uh, we are just going through the spiritual, the, the religious motions here this morning, just engaged in fruitless and vain religious exercises unless you give us ears to hear, unless you give us soft hearts to receive your word, unless you give us eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so please meet with us, Father. Please be merciful to us once again. Amen. We are starting a series in what is sometimes called the Minor Prophets, for those of you who weren't here last week, to uh, get the homework brief. Uh, right in the middle of your Bible, you know, if you have an analog Bible, one of the old-fashioned Bibles that actually has pages, uh, and if it's your, been your Bible for some time, uh, the edges of your Bible, sort of Genesis, Exodus, and then the New Testament, that those will be brown, those pages will be brown and worn. But in the middle, there's a pristine white section where no man has feared to go. That's where the minor prophets live. Right there in the middle of your Bible, it starts with Hosea, it ends with Malachi. There are lots of interesting names in between. Twelve minor prophets that nobody's ever heard of, fewer have ever read. And they called the minor prophets not because they work underground. It's got nothing to do with the gold price. It's not because they're not important, not minor in that sense either. It's because the books are short. It's that simple. These prophets were brief. They kept to the point. Unusual for a preacher, I know. Hashtag bring back the minor prophets. <laughs> Isaiah, just to give you a sense, Isaiah 66 chapters. Hosea, who has the most to say out of all the minor prophets, he says it all in 14 chapters. So the minor prophets, because they're brief. And there are 12 of them. The interesting thing is that there are 12 prophets, but it's only one book. 
It's not 12 books. It's one book with 12 chapters. So from as early as 200 B.C., this one book was called The Twelve Prophets. And from ancient times, the Hebrews would talk about 24 books in their Bible. Now, that's only possible if we count the 12 as one. So it's one book. And in that one book, we can see evidence of an inspired composer or editor who has pulled the 12 chapters together. And he's worked at the seams of those chapters so that we can see that they hold together. There are comments at the end of one chapter and at the beginning of the next that stand out. They use the same language to tie those two chapters together. They normally also include a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. So the work of the composer is there. It's it's evident for us to see. And it also helps us to understand the one message of this one book and how each of the 12 chapters contributes to that one message. I'm going to break every rule of storytelling and I'm going to give you the punchline up front. Here's an easy way to remember it. If you want to remember the message, the punchline, the heartbeat of the minor prophets, go to Hosea 3, 4, 5. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Or, if you like, 1, 3, 4, 5. That's, that's just a short way of remembering, shorthand for remembering the heart of the message of the minor prophets. One, three, four, five. First book, chapter three, verses four and five. Let's read it very quickly again. Chapter three, verse four. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince or without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Verse 4 there promises the judgment of Israel. And verse 5 promises the restoration of Israel. And so the minor prophets are about the judgment and restoration of Israel. Or, as one writer put it, the minor prophets are about the death and resurrection of Israel. That sounds familiar, it should. In one way or another, each of these 12 prophets is speaking, preaching, proclaiming that general message, the death and resurrection of Israel. Israel will die for her sin, but she will be raised again. The Lord will raise her up again to new life. It's a message of salvation through judgment. And I hope you can see it's a message with real relevance for us today. That's, of course, the book as a whole. We are dealing with the first chapter this morning, Hosea. And if we're going to have any hope of understanding what the prophet Hosea was saying to the people of his time, so that we can then understand what God is saying to us in our time, we need a little bit of a history lesson. So, Hosea was speaking in the second half of the 8th century BC, so 750 odd years before Christ. He's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes that broke away from Judah and Benjamin when the kingdom split into two, just after the reign of Solomon. Now Israel, that's the northern 10 tribes, that's, that's who Hosea's preaching to. They're also called Samaria, Ephraim in the book of Hosea. They're just different names for the same thing, the same 
the same collection of tribes, Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, they were living through colorful times. There was massive geopolitical turmoil. Assyria was the new superpower on the block, and he was flexing his muscles. Israel just happened to live on the same street, and the bully visited them often. Assyria invaded Palestine and its neighbors six times during, just during the prophecy of Hosea. So there was chaos in the neighborhood. There was also chaos at home. During the prophecy of Hosea, Israel had six different kings in just 30 years. And the last four were all assassinated. So internationally, locally, it was a mess. For the ordinary Israelite, it must have been a time of incredible uncertainty and enormous pressure. Sound familiar? Let me take you back to your chemistry classes. So we've just had a history class. The bell has now rung. We're going to chemistry. If you take an average human being and you apply pressure, what happens? There's a reaction, isn't there? Pressure tends to strip away the outer layer and expose the true colors underneath. If you want to see the true character of a man or a woman, put them under pressure. Put them under pressure. You'll see what's really there. If you want to know what a man or woman really trusts, really fears, put them under pressure. So what was the character of Israel, the true character of Israel? What were they really trusting? What did they really fear? In other words, how did Israel respond under the pressure? Hosea gives a short answer in one three-letter word. Sin. One word answer, but he has a whole range of metaphors and word pictures to help us understand what he means by that one short word. The first metaphor he uses, and one that dominates his thinking throughout this chapter, is prostitution. There was a hint of it in what Cornelius read for us, but we get a much fuller picture in chapter 1 of Hosea. In fact, Hosea himself and his family, they become a kind of a parable, a teaching aid of Israel's sinful relationship with God. So they're a picture. They themselves become a picture of Israel's sinful relationship with God. Look at chapter 1 verse 2 there with me. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I mean, so it blows our minds, doesn't it? What the Lord is saying to his prophet is go and marry a prostitute. And have children with her. Because that's what it's like being in relationship with Israel. Israel is unfaithful. And if you read the rest of the book, you get a sense of what the Lord means. Israel has many lovers. Politically, she forms alliances with Assyria and Egypt. And she's faithful to neither of them. She keeps flip-flopping between the two. Egypt now, Assyria then, Assyria then back to Egypt. Spiritually... 
she prostitutes herself with the god, the pagan god Baal. And the image of prostitution makes sense when we think about what the worship of Baal looked like. Remember, of course, Israel was an agricultural society, so they depended deeply on natural conditions that were beyond their control for a fruitful harvest. Now, if you wanted Baal's help towards a fruitful harvest, what you would do is you would go to the temple shrine or the high place and you would have sex with a temple prostitute. And the idea is that you would entice Baal into a kind of sex of the gods that would then produce the fertility that you were hoping for in your harvest. You with me? That's how it worked. So you can imagine Joe, Israelite farmer, heading out on a Friday night. His wife asks him, where are you going? Joe responds, no, I'm just going to the shrine to take care of next year's harvest. She might raise an eyebrow. The point is this. Israel, under pressure, We're running after other lovers for protection, for prosperity. They never left the Lord behind. She never left the Lord. She just wanted to make sure. She just wanted a little extra comfort on the side. Just a little insurance. Prostitution is the main picture. But Hosea has a whole canvas full of colorful images of sinful Israel. Let me give you a a little bit of an insight. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to move quite quickly. In chapter 4, verse 16, Israel is a stubborn cow. A stubborn cow that refuses to be led to good pastures. In 7, verse 4, Israel, in her political deal-making, is an untended oven or coals that we know this from Brys and campfires that are covered in ash. They look cold. They look safe. They look harmless. But underneath, they are hot and dangerous. In 7, 11, and 12, chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, Israel is a silly, senseless dove calling to Assyria, calling to Egypt, calling to Assyria, calling to Egypt, calling herself into a trap. In 8 verse 7, Israel is a mad farmer who, instead of sowing actual seed, sows nothing, sows vanity, futility, sows the wind, and will reap the whirlwind. Worshipping Baal for fertility is worshipping nothing. And so Israel can expect less than nothing in return. She can expect disaster. In chapter 8 verse 9, Israel is a wild donkey. In trusting Assyria for security, she's acting like a donkey foolishly wandering around the wilderness, wandering around the desert, exposed, vulnerable. In 10 verses 1 and 2, Israel is the treacherous grapevine. The more the Lord blesses her, the more she takes that abundance and devotes it to Baal. In 10, 11 to 13, Israel is a wayward calf. She used to use her freedom for obedience. She now uses it for disobedience. In 13.13, Israel is a baby that refuses to be born. Refusing to repent means Israel will be stillborn. Just a few of the images of Israel's sin that Hosea paints for us. The first thing we want to see is the number and variety of images that he uses. 
I mean, that in itself is striking, isn't it? What is it saying to us? It's saying sin is not simple. The surest way to know we haven't understood our sin is to think we've understood it. If you want to know that you've missed the point, ask yourself, do I think I understand my sin? I've got a handle on it. Sin is subtle and deceptive. And so we need to be so vigilant. We need to be on our guard. Let's run through some of those portraits that Hosea painted for us and try to see what they teach us. So the stubborn cow. God wants to lead us to good places, to good pastures. But in our sin, we're not going to see them as good places. We're going to want nothing to do with them. We will not want to go. We'll be rearing up on our hindquarters and thrashing this way and that to resist him in his leadership. Sin makes us distrust the goodness, the very goodness of God. We don't trust it. And sin has been that way since the very beginning. The unattended oven. Our passions are dangerous. Are we watching them closely? Are we paying attention? The things that make you really angry or get you really excited, the things you daydream about. In your sin, you will be reckless with your passions, unattentive, casual, careless. You will leave them unattended. The message of Hosea is someone is going to get burnt. The stupid dove, in our sin, we will put our trust in things that will ultimately kill us. And we'll be flipping from one to the next. For now, it's your pension plan or your hospital plan. Next month, it's your ancestors. By the end of the year, you are trusting in your church religion to save you. Message of Hosea. None of them can. And in the end, all of them will enslave you, including your church religion, which is so deceptive. Trusting in your own good behavior rather than in the goodness of God. The mad farmer. Sin invests in emptiness. And that makes the situation worse, not better. You know, if we sow the wind... We're going to reap the whirlwind. So if you invest in romantic relationships for your ultimate security, it's not going to take long before you are more insecure than when you started. The wild donkey. Wander away from God in your stubbornness and you will be alone and exposed and vulnerable in the desert of this life. The treacherous grapevine. Sin takes, gathers the blessings of God and devotes them to other gods, like our pleasure or our lifestyle or our status or my name, my career, my success. The trained calf. Sin takes the freedom God has given us. It takes it 
And it goes to places and does things that God has warned us not to do for our own sakes. The baby that refuses to be born, sin will not repent. Sin is too proud to admit failure to itself, to yourself, to myself, let alone to others. So proud that even when life-giving forgiveness and reconciliation is on offer, as it always is, sin refuses, sin declines. And a baby that won't be born will die. Finally, the wife of prostitution. As we said, this is the most prominent and the most important of Hosea's images. What does it show us? And this is, we really must grasp this. Because this is right in the essence of what Hosea is communicating. What does this image of the wife of prostitution show us about our sin? It shows us how deeply personal sin is. See, sin is, and we're in danger of thinking like this, sin is not like defrauding SARS, okay? If you defraud SARS, they will prosecute you. But no one at SARS is going to lose any sleep. No one at SARS could really care less about you as just yet another fraud. Sin is much more like cheating on your spouse. If you cheat on your spouse, they are not going to refer it to the appropriate department. They're not just going to send an email to forensics and forget about it. They will be heartbroken. They will be deeply, deeply wounded. Your sin is not a breach of contract with some faceless institution. It is betraying the Father who loves you. It's violating his trust. It's siding with his enemies. It's wishing him dead so that we can have the inheritance. Sin is deeply personal. We have to get that. That's what Hosea is saying to us. That's what the Lord is saying to us through Hosea. Listen to the heart of the Father from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. But they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I bent down to them and fed them. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Can you hear how deeply personal sin is? I think if we see that, if we see our sin not just breaking some rules written on a tablet of stone, if we see it as breaking a covenant of love, well, I think that's the beginnings of seeing it appropriately, seeing it as it truly is, and taking it more seriously. That's sin. The prophet Isaiah says that after sin comes judgment. Now, judgment is not a popular theme. It's not my favorite theme as a preacher, I can promise you that. But Hosea 
is long on judgment. And if I don't preach judgment, I haven't preached Hosea, and I haven't been faithful to God, and I haven't been faithful to you. Hosea gives us so many graphic images of judgment. But let me read the one that I think is going to resonate the most with us. It's from chapter 13, verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up in pride, and they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will, will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. I have a friend who has some personal experience with this whole metaphor. Um, he took his daughter to the lion park. He went with his daughter and his father, so it's three generations, grandfather, father, granddaughter they drive into the park they go in and they haven't gone too far and there's a lioness right there by the side of the road so they stop they roll down the window so they can take a photograph and it only takes a moment and this lioness locks eyes with the granddaughter now i don't know if you've ever been close enough to a lion to actually look into its eyes but it's like they look straight through you It's like they look into your soul. It's that kind of penetrating gaze. A few seconds pass and this lioness just takes off. And she dives straight through the window at this little girl. Now by some divine intervention, the grandfather instinctively moves across. I think if he had time to think, he would have jumped into the back seat. But he moves across to shield the granddaughter and the lioness just starts mauling him here in the shoulder area. My friend turns around. He's trying to beat this lioness off. Of course, it's having absolutely no effect. And he, again, in I think divinely prompted moment, he decides to hit the accelerator. The vehicle takes off. The animal falls off the vehicle. Now, the whole thing only lasted a few seconds. But that man was in ICU for months. That's the power we're talking about. And that's the picture of judgment that Hosea gives to Israel. It's a picture of death and not a peaceful passing in your sleep. This is a traumatic death. The message of Hosea is that sin leads to that kind of death. He also explains how sin leads to death. Let me give you just one example from chapter 8 verse 13, the second half of the verse. It says this, Now the Lord will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. That's the key phrase for us. They shall return to Egypt. What does that mean? It means that if Israel wants to try and find security in Egypt, then eventually the Lord won't stop them. If Egypt is what they want, in the end, Egypt is what they will get. 
Judgment is God giving us over to our sin. And ultimately, if he does that, it's a traumatic mauling. In so doing, judgment is a reversal of covenant blessings. It's the other side of the covenant, if you like. It's an exchange of covenant blessings for covenant curses. The Lord redeemed Israel out of Egypt, if you remember the story. He redeemed them out of Egypt to be his people. If they go back, if they choose to go back, if they refuse that blessing, they are reversing the process. They are trading freedom for slavery. That's why in chapter 1, the Lord instructs Hosea to name his third child with the prostitute, not my people. If you want to forsake God, in the end, he will give you your heart's desire, and you will be God-forsaken, not my people. It'll be a reversal of the covenant blessing that says, you are my people. Judgment is a giving over to sin and a reversal of covenant blessing. In judgment, the Lord is setting us free to self-destruct and to choose the curse. Now this prophecy of judgment is fulfilled on three levels. The first level, fulfillment comes on Israel herself in the form of exile. Israel wanted to get security from Assyria In the end, Assyria is what they got. Assyria invaded, and they were taken off. They were destroyed and taken off into exile. They wanted security. They ended up with the deepest insecurity available. Second level of fulfillment comes to anyone at the end, at the end of history, anyone who forsakes God for other lovers. It stands as a stark warning to us all third level of prophecy that we often miss but it's so important that we don't miss this prophecy of judgment gives us insight into what our Lord Jesus endured so that we don't have to when you read Hosea it is giving us insight into the horrors of the cross when you read Old Testament judgment in all of its graphic terror think of your king And know that that's what he had to suffer in our place. He throws himself between you and the lioness. That's the three levels of judgment. Israel, us, and our Lord Jesus. Now in all of this thinking about judgment, and I know it's a heavy topic What we need to know, what we must never lose sight of, is that judgment is not what the Lord wants for his people. Listen to the word of the Lord from the prophet Ezekiel. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. He's swearing by himself. As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O people of Israel? Hosea makes a similar call to repentance. Chapter 14, verse 1. 
Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, O Lord, the orphan finds mercy. Through the prophet, the Lord pleads with his people to turn away from their false lovers. And he's pleading with us this morning. I hope you hear him. Turn away from your false lovers. So how does the story end? Well, if you've read on, you know all too well Israel did not respond to the pleas of the Lord. They did not repent. And so they died. Assyria conquered Israel. They were taken into exile. Israel died. The great and glorious promise of Hosea is that Israel would be raised again to new life. Listen to chapter 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, this time in summons, not in terror. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Or from this morning's passage, our key verse, remember Hosea 1, 3, 4, 5. Verse 5, afterward, The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. See, there's a wonderful restoration for promise to Israel. There's this wonderful promise of restoration. And the key, the key is the Davidic king. The key is the king in the line of David. One in the line of David would bring them back from exile. Back from banishment back into the blessed presence of their heavenly Father. In the darkness of sin and judgment and failure to repent, this promise is the first hint of dawn. The sky is just beginning to break. And that's the message of Hosea to Israel. What is God's message to us here this morning? Because we're also his covenant people. And so we share so much with Israel. I think two things, at least these two things. A warning and then a comfort. A warning and a comfort. First, the warning. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says to his people, if you are lukewarm, if you are some mix of devotion to God and devotion to false lovers, other lovers, idols, be very careful because at some point I will give you over to what your hearts desire. 
at some point I will spit you out. It's the warning of the prophet Hosea. And it comes to us through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So here's the question we can't escape. And it's for all of us, starting with the preacher. Here's the question. Who are your false lovers? If God is your plan A, what's your plan B? And now is not the time to fool around and pretend that we're exempt from this question. The Lord knows anyway. We have an opportunity. His warning is a mercy to us. So let's be honest. I'm trusting in money. Or I'm devoted to my lifestyle. Or I worship my children. Their success. Their happiness. Their extramurals. I'm trying to save myself by my commitment to service in this church. Whatever it may be, spit it out of your mouth before Jesus spits you out of his. It's a grave warning. It's a serious warning. It's a real warning for us all. But it's a warning couched in comfort. Because Jesus continues to address the church at Laodicea. He says this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, be serious, be sober-minded, be honest with yourself and repent. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's calling us to repent. He's knocking. And do you see that he only warns those who loves? He loves. So this, this warning is not, not meant to make us insecure. He warns those he loves. His warnings are one of the key ways he keeps us to the very end. He warns those he loves. He's standing and knocking. He wants to make his home with you again. But he can't share that home with another lover. That's too much to ask. Let him in. He loves you. He's the true bridegroom. Let him take his place, the only rightful place. Let him take his place on the throne of your heart. And remember, there's only room for one on that throne. Hosea gives us a window into the Father's heart for his children, and what we find there is a picture of perfect love. He forgives the unforgivable, even our divided hearts, our prostitution. In fact, he pursues the prostitutes in us. He pursues us. He woos us. He's, he's courting us again. He loves the unlovable. Listen 
Listen just one last time this morning to the prophecy of Hosea, to the word of the Lord through the prophet Hosea, and know that this love that we're going to hear in just a moment, this love is fulfilled. This love for you, this is the Father's love for you, and it is fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 4. I will heal their apostasy, their divided hearts, the prostitute in all of them. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Let's pray. Father, this hasn't been an easy message, but we thank you. We thank you for the message of Hosea. Thank you for exposing our divided hearts. Thank you for helping us to understand the deceitfulness of sin and the terror of judgment. Father, in our fear and our shame, help us to hear your call and to run to our faithful bridegroom to the one who bore the horrors of our judgment, the one who died that we might live, the one who threw himself between us and the lioness, the one who draws us back with cords of love, the one who is knocking even now. Help us to answer his call. Help us to return to him. Help us to turn from our false gods and our false lovers to love and serve him and him alone. King Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.